Youngins, it is about that time. You can head up on out of here. I do wish I was going with you, but you're going to have a good day downstairs. Your teachers are waiting for you in the back. We will see you when we head down for Sandwich Sunday. So, um, man, I was just thinking, they're, gonna, like, they're in a prime location to get to the front of the line for them sandwiches. That's, I need to uh, like, think about when I, schedule, when I get on the schedule to teach downstairs. I'm going to start doing that on the first so I can be uh, front of the line. Um, one thing I want to get out of the way before we get going, just because I've had several conversations with folks about it today, but there's something going on uh, or something, you know, online about uh, men thinking of the Roman Empire often. And I've had, I just want to address this. Um, I, I didn't realize that I, I, I actually do that um, because it really is more tied to gladiator. I like to throw things at my kids and go, are you not entertained? And uh, so I guess in that, I do think of the Roman Empire at least once a week, so that might be true. Um, so uh, my kids are over there, and I'm going to talk about them a few times today, so you can look over there and see if they are uh, enjoying the presentation. So <laughs> let's pray. Oh, Lord, I ask you would be with us this morning. Father, we just look back over the past week since we've been together and all of the things that have happened, uh, all of the life that we have lived, all of the, the experiences, Father, all the joy, all the sadness, all the anger, frustration, uh, all the, the conflict. Father, I pray that, that you would go back over the last week and I pray that we could see you in our mind's eye. Just present yourself in that place. I pray, Lord, that we would see you in it all. And as we see you in it all, I pray that we would also feel it settle. I pray that we'd be able to just submit it to you, that we could trust you. I pray that you'd be with us today as we see another picture of how trustworthy you are. So be with us in Jesus' name. Well, this fall, we are looking at the parables that Jesus taught in the Gospels to help us better understand what it is to abide in him, what it means to abide in him. Uh, we're launching this study from his words in John chapter 15 when he says, abide in me, and he uses the metaphor of a vine and branches, branches being fed by the vine. This metaphor demonstrates that we all draw sustainment from something. And what we draw sustainment from, what is our vine, determines life or death. So the competition of all things that present as life-giving is real. There is a competition of things that present themselves as life-giving. Something we encounter every day, something that permeates history is a reality experienced by all of humanity in every era of all time. Most of these things that present as life actually lead to a slow death as we feed and feed and need and need more and more and are yet never filled. So Jesus, the true vine, offers us the, the sustainment that leads to life. His call to abide in him, to remain in him, 
is the call to the light of life. So as we move through these parables, and as we've moved through the parables thus far, we're finding that this call to remain in him, this call to abide, is really a call to allow God to be God. Allow the character of God to come out. Allow us to experience God as he designed this experience to be. To experience the character and love of God. Today we're looking at a familiar parable, one that is so familiar that the secular world knows it well enough to take it wildly out of context and misapply it, making it more about us than about God. Today we're going to finish Luke 15 and the parable commonly entitled, The Prodigal Son. Now as we've moved through this series and why I say commonly entitled, we have been renaming a lot of the parables. And we are going to do that again today. We are going to rename this parable as well. We are going to uh, put to bed the name Prodigal Son. And we're going to find a new name because uh, really the renaming of these parables is driven by observing which character of the story truly is the main character. What we're finding is that we are not the main character of the story. In this parable, there are several characters to examine. We've got a couple of sons. We have a father. We've got a household and a village that that observes all of these events. Uh, So we have a lot to choose from in terms of of deciding who the main character might be in, in this parable. Also, this parable is unique to Luke, and it's almost allegorical. Almost allegorical. Allegory, you know, using a a fictional character to kind of bring forth the truth. I say it's almost allegorical because these fictional characters, when I read them, I I kind of step back and say, wait a minute, is he talking about me? And so I call it almost allegorical. Almost because the unpacking of these characters really leads me to some self-reflection. It really does, uh, in in a lot of different ways, this story of the prodigal son is uh, all too real. The father in this parable pictures God. That's an easy one, right? This, the father in this pictures God. But also, the father in this parable will reflect the true definition of repentance. And it gives us a view of what we are called to image as we co- come to know and love and be loved by the Father. And so the Father in this parable, representing God, also represents that which, which a follower of Jesus will attain in terms of how others experience them. The prodigal son, or the younger son, symbolizes the lost, especially the tax collectors and sinners that we see in Luke 15, verse 1, but also, but more than that even, he will exemplify those that know the Father, and yet still find themselves lost. Those that know the Father and might choose to be lost. The elder brother is going to represent the self-righteous leadership, the Pharisees, the scribes of verse 1, or anyone else that claims to serve God but is harsh towards the possibility of forgiveness for sinners. The elder brother represents those that resist true repentance by moving from forgiven to forgiver. Also in this parable, there is a term that's poorly defined. This term is the term prodigal. 
You might have heard prodigal defined as lost or wayward. It isn't even anywhere close to meaning lost or wayward. The definition of prodigal is recklessly extravagant in spending. This can be an adjective or a noun, but prodigal is about reckless extravagancy. And so we will see some reckless spending that goes, uh, that, that, that one, that the son that gets himself into trouble will, uh, will engage in. But there's another in this story that recklessly spends in the manner that we saw of the farmer sowing seed a few weeks ago. This character will demonstrate what it is to love, and it's going to give us a picture of what it is to be a follower of Jesus. This parable is in the Gospel of Luke. It follows immediately after the, the parables of the, of the shepherd's joy and the lost coin that we talked about last week. We're going to begin Luke 15, verse 10, if you want to join me. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angel, angels when one, even one sinner repents. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want, a share, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed and divided his wealth between his sons. Now, this departure of the younger son is, is presented much more simply than it actually is. The culture that Jesus is teaching into would be familiar with the, le- the, the legalities and th- the traditions surrounding inheritance, and all of this would flow out of Deuteronomy chapter 21. The younger son, not being the heir, could expect upon the death of his father one-third of the family estate. Now, while it occasionally would happen before the death of the father, like if the father was a- unable to run the household, the eldest son steps into it, that might be a, a trigger that the inheritance would come sooner than, than the death. But asking for an inheritance from a father who is alive and well is to say that I wish you were dead. Asking a father that's alive for the inheritance is to say, I wish you weren't alive. The younger son is saying in this parable, I wish you were dead. I want to be released from this family. I want to live my life as though you don't exist, as this family doesn't exist. I want out, and I'm done. This is a breach of relationship. It's a callous rejection of the relationship between father and son, a rejection of the nurturing, the raising, the training, an offense that's meant to sever the relationship and create an unpassable rift. So we're not talking about just burning the bridge. It's, what, well, what could you do more to, like, burning the ashes too? Do, this, there is no way that reconciliation is possible with this kind of offense. In the culture, in the, in the, the ancient Near East culture, in the Middle East culture, in the, the, the culture of the, the Palestinian era, or area where this would be taking place, this would be a blood insult.
on the part of the younger son, it's also an attempt to find the love offered by the father at home in another place or context. It isn't just a rejection of love, it's the beginning of seeking love in another place. In this, the son exemplifies all those that are lost, all those that have been lost, and all those that will be lost. Now, often we think of those that, that have yet to hear the gospel of Jesus, that have yet to hear the good news as the, the lost. And certainly, that's true. Those that have yet to enter a relationship with Jesus, these are the lost. But we have to remember something about this story. We have to remember something about what Jesus is teaching in this parable, in, in this allegory. This son grew up knowing the father. He lived with him. He saw what he wore down to the kitchen to get his first cup of coffee. He heard the father's awesome jokes. He, this son, has even begged for popcorn like a starving coyote from the father's bowl. He knows where in the garage that the green-stained shoes are. This son knows the father. This is an established relationship between a loving father and a son that for some reason has calloused his heart to all that that love provides. Now, you'll often hear me talk about Henry Nowen and uh, you know, this is a, a pastor and an author that has spoken to me in, in, in a variety of contexts. He writes in, in a book he wrote about uh, the prodigal son, that, uh, some, some reflections as he was looking at Rembrandt's painting of, of the prodigal son. And it's hanging in my office if you've never seen it before. It's, it, it is an astoundingly moving piece of, of art. Henry Nouwen writes this about the similarities he finds in himself and the younger son. I read this because this is when that comment about almost allegorical really comes home for me. Over and over again, I have left home. I have fled the hands of blessing and ran off to faraway places searching for love. This is the greatest tragedy of my life and of the lives of so many I meet on my journey. Somehow, I have become deaf to the voice that calls me the beloved, have left the only place where I can hear that voice, and have gone off desperately hoping that I would find somewhere else that I could no longer find at home. Almost allegorical. This parable, now I see it. This parable has me as part of the cast. When I find myself aware of the Father's love, but I'm unable to pass it on to those around me. When I'm un when I am aware, when I am aware of the forgiveness that's offered me, but I deny it to those that sin against me. When resentment grows in my heart, 
when I look to things of this world to be the source of entertainment, to be the source of contentment, to be the source of affirmation, to be the source of love, when I do these things, I am the younger son. These things are the ultimate rejection of the father's love. And in this, the character of God exemplified in the father of this story begins to take shape. Now we see that the younger son, me, I'm in the cast of the parable, but I'm not the main character. This actually is the, the, the parable of the prodigal father, the parable of the extravagant father, the parable of the reckless love of the father. This parable begins seeing him rejected by the object of his love, his own creation. The one that knows him has rejected him. Honestly, this must have cut deep. This must have cut the father deeply. His own child is rejecting him. Rejecting his family. Rejecting the future that would see him serve and advance this family into the next generation. The father knows that, that in choosing to abandon the order provide, providing in the household by the presence of the father, this son is on a path that will lead to isolated death. In the household, under the umbrella of the father's love, there is order. Outside of that, we see a path with the destination of isolated death. Deuteronomy 30, 19. Today I've given you the choice between life and death, between blessings and curses. Now I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice you make. Oh, that you would choose life so that you and your descendants might live. This is the heart of the Father. The love that comes through this passage demonstrates that, that really the younger son is at a crossroads. Given the choice between the order of the kingdom with God as the center of this order, he chooses a path that makes him the center of his own order, and he prepares a life and a religion that would serve that order. That verse in Deuteronomy is so striking to me because we, what we see in this is, is exactly what we see in the, the parable of the extravagant father. The father doesn't object. The amount of love that flows out of that verse in Deuteronomy, it, it's, it's striking. The father is faithful to his character. He's faithful to the character we know, and he loves so much that he allows the freedom of this choice. This is about love. When we read that, oh, that you would choose life so that you and your descendants might live, we see the heart of the Father. He wants that choice. He sees what is offered in that choice, but he knows that not everybody's going to make that choice. This is amazing love. 
that he gives us this freedom to make the choice. Amazing love, and it's also kind of scary. He loves us so much, he gives us what we ask for. When the son rejects the father, the father does not object. He doesn't plead with him to stay. He doesn't lock him in his room. He doesn't strike him dead for the blood offense that he just committed. He says, okay. And it becomes a very sobering point that God will allow us to have what we fight him for. The parable begins with a blood insult that leads to a demonstration of reckless extravagant love. Back in the story, verse 13, a few days later, this younger son packed all of his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there, he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. The younger son has found that order only occurs when all of creation is in its created place and functioning as it was designed in relationship to everything else. With God at the center. When anything else is at the center, it isn't order but chaos that results. We see the chaos that results in the attempt to find the peace, comfort, and love that the Father offers when we're looking in other places. This pursuit of the love is expensive. Kind of feel like I should wait for an amen for that, right? That is the pursuit of love outside of the covering of the Father is expensive. Addiction is expensive. Thank you. Addiction is expensive. One lesson that that all of us uh, have learned youngins, chaos is costly. Another amen maybe for that one. Chaos is costly. It cost him everything. He tried to fill the void. Couldn't be filled. The younger son ends up isolated and starving. He finds out that the world is not tolerant of the needy. The world cares nothing for him. He has nothing to offer the world now that his money is dried up. So his only relationship is with pigs. And pigs are the most unclean animal that a Jewish person would know. This is where he ends up. When we have nothing to offer the world, the world doesn't care about us. And the younger son is realizing this. Luke 15, 17 through 19, when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I'll go home to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on 
as your hired servant. When he finally came to his senses, he may have come back to his senses, but he still demonstrates a, a really fundamental misunderstanding of his father. He realizes that he erred badly. He realizes that he sinned, that, that he sinned, that whatever caused him to abandon the house of love was actually counterfeit. He understands that now. He sees his error. He recognize it, recognizes it as sin. And that is an important first step. For the younger son, for me, this is an important first step. For the person that knows the father's love and willingly steps outside of the father's love, realizing that, what, that we've stepped out is where we begin. We have to wake up to reality and see where the road that we're on will lead. We have to see our isolation. And what we can see in this is a confession as we agree with the fact that we've gone deaf to the love of the Father. He wants to return, but he still misunderstands the Father. What he does in, in that passage is he tries to create a system that would allow him to come home in a paradigm that would make sense to him. And I don't know if this has landed yet. It, it's, it's landing for me as I'm, I'm reading this is God doesn't make sense. God doesn't make sense. I've tried to create a paradigm that would allow me to come home. The young son has created an offense. Because of this offense, he's disqualified himself from his role. In his mind, he's no longer able to be called a son. Almost allegorical, correct? If we have ever been in the place where we have done something, engaged in something, for a moment, an hour, a day, a week, years, decades of our life, if we have done things that we know is an offense, that we know is a break of relationship, that we know is going to the place to find love, that there is no love to be found. And because of that offense, we have disqualified ourselves from the love of God. We don't understand the extravagant, recklessly loving Father. So again, he's created an offense, and he realizes this. He's no longer able to be called a son in his mind because of what he did. In his mind, he's disqualified himself. He likely also has demonstrated this counterfeit theology of forgiveness in his own life by not forgiving others that have offended him. He is working in a system that makes sense to him. He's working in a system that makes sense to him because it's about justice. You get what you deserve. I don't deserve to be your son anymore. But I also don't want to get dead. So can I just be your servant? This is tragic how much it makes sense to me. 
Does it make sense to you? It's tragic that this makes sense to us. This doesn't make sense to God. It doesn't make sense to God because this isn't the way that he loved. And it's also not the way that he teaches us to love. Now we're getting into the parable. Verse 20. He returned home to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. He said, his son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both you, both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. Kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For the son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. So the party began. So we have the prodigal father, the recklessly extravagant love that takes us back to last week when we examined the parable of the shepherd's joy that really strikes at the heart of how we image God. The son was expecting to be treated how he would treat a sinner. But what he received would change him forever. The reckless love of the father is shown in the fact that, that he was watching for him. He saw him coming from a long way. He was watching for his son's return. Likely from the, from the moment or the day that his son left, his eyes were on the horizon, and he waited. He also violated some community standards by debasing himself through an extravagant display of emotion. He ran to his son when he was still a ways off. We don't know how far he ran, but think about in a culture where especially the most important men, they don't run. They also don't wear garments that are designed to run. So this dude hitched up his man dress and showed the world his stuff as he sprinted towards his son. He didn't care what people saw. The only thing that he cared about was getting to his son. Everything fades away. The world ceases to exist around him because his son is coming home. His son tries to, to bargain with him. He's got, you think about the son walking home. He's, he's playing this over in his head about how he's going to talk to the father, what I'm going to say to him, how he's going to respond, what I'll say to his response, playing that over and over again. Je Jesus, the father, the, the, the prodigal father in this parable doesn't even listen to the words that he said. 
The son comes and gives him his, his canned message. And the father talks to the servants. Clothe him. Give him the credit card. Put sandals on his feet. And get ready to party. Again, from now on. It's hard to read about the love of God and not have some emotion come over you. The heart of the father burns with an immense desire to bring his children home. Oh, how much would he have liked to talk to them, to warn them against the many dangers they were facing, to convince them at home can be found everything that they are searching for elsewhere. How much would he have liked to pull them back with his fatherly authority and hold them close to himself so that they could not get hurt. But his love is too great to do any of that. It cannot force, constrain, push, or pull. It offers the freedom to reject that love or to love in return. It is precisely the immensity of the divine love that is the source of divine suffering. God, creator of heaven and earth, has chosen to be, first and foremost, a father. As father, he wants his children to be free. Free to love. In the role of the father, the authority that God claims for himself is the authority of compassion. There is no revenge. There's no price to pay. There's no entry fee. There's only love. The return of the son finds the recklessly extravagant love of the father. The prodigal father is also a picture of the shepherd's joy. And what do they do when they have joy? Sandwich Sunday. Amen. Amen. They have a party. They have a party because what was lost has been found. Would be really kind of like, that's enough, Jesus. That was a good parable. We'll call her good, move on with our day. But there's more. There's one more departure and one more return in this parable. Luke 15, 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We're celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, All these years, I've slaved for you. Never once refused to do a single thing that you told me to do. In all that time, you've never given me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. 
Yet when the son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. His father said to him, look, dear son, you've always stayed by me. Everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day. For your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he's found. The older son has a departure and a return of his own in this. Seeing the way that the father treats this offense offends the elder son. Why would the father not give the younger son what he deserves? He ought to pay for his sin. He ought to have a punishment. He ought not be allowed back to a place at the father's table because he transgressed the father's table. He does not deserve anything. The older son slips into dangerous ground when he begins the argument of comparison. He compares his good works to the sin of the younger son. He makes it not about love, but about work and effort. He fails to see that this philosophy puts himself at the center of order in the same way that the younger son was looking to be the center of order. The work is not a labor of love. The work that he's done for the father is about survival and advancement. This is the heart of the religious. The heart of those that have rules that others must live by. Those that lack a theology of forgiveness and uphold a theology of justice. This is forcing behavior in order to belong. The elder son left the father because he can't love like the father. When we looked at the parable last week of the shepherd's joy and of the lost coin, I made a comment that when we talk about true repentance, True repentance is not about behaving, but about reflecting. Often we can find ourselves in this paradigm where when we repent, when we turn away from our sin, we think of it as behavior because we're thinking about the sin rather than the Father or the Father's love. Repentance isn't turning away from the sin, it's turning towards God. And so then repentance is demonstrated not by no longer doing the sin, but by reflecting the love of the Father. And when we, reflect, when we reflect the love of the Father, the behavior is taken care of because we no longer have a competition in our hearts for the thing that will be the center of order. True repentance is not about behavior. It's about reflecting the love of the Father. When we tell people to repent, we must be aware of what we're telling them to do. We are creating a religion that does not reflect the love of the Father when we are talking about behavior. 
True repentance is demonstrated when we, in this almost allegorical parable, become the father. To be repentant of a sinful life is to reflect the extravagant love of the Father to those around us. The sinners, the lost, those yet to be in our family, those in our family now, all of it. We repent from our sins when we love each other the way that the Father loves us. And so as we turn back to worship, we return back to John 15. Abide in me and I in you. This is what Jesus directs. We abide in him. We draw life from him. When we love like him. And when we celebrate. When the lost is found.